turn to Genesis chapter 38. We'll be continuing in our series in Genesis. It's on page 38 of the Pew Bible. A tabloid is a type of popular, largely sensationalistic paper, such as we have here in the States as National Enquirer. Over in, in Britain, there's a bunch of them. The famous one, I think, is the Daily Mirror or the Sun. Their focus is mainly on things like sensational crime stories. We, I don't know, about 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago now, it was all about the O.J. Simpson trial. Those papers were consumed with that. It, they, they focus on entertainment industry scandals, such as the current one with uh, Harvey Weinstein. And also, a large amount of ink is spilled talking about celebrity gossip. And when you stand in the line of the grocery store, you see these faces and the headlines and they expose the darker sides of people's lives, put them right out front for you to see the lying and the, and the cheating and the adultery, the breakups, uh, the babies that are born out of wedlock and the bad family relationships, the shotgun weddings and, and dubious deaths. What's so startling about all this is that what I just mentioned is all found right here in chapter 38. And so, that's why I've titled our time together today, A Tabloid Testimony. Because it is a testimony of Judah and the family that we're going to look at today. Look with me at verse 1 in chapter 38. God's word says, It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform your duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste his semen on the ground, so that not, as not to give her an offspring for his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and she put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. 
When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, and he and his friend Hira the Dumalite. Then Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. She took off her widow garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapped herself up, and sat at the entrance of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of that place, Where is the cult prostitute who was at Inaim, at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son Shelah. And they did not know her again. When the time came for her labor, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out his hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew his hand back in, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Father God, I pray that you will speak to your people through your word, Holy Spirit, Help me communicate what you have put down here to your people clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. This chapter represents about a 22-year span in redemptive history. We've just been introduced to Joseph in the last chapter. His story will carry us all the way to the end of Genesis. But here we have a parallel narrative going on. 
for 22 years. So Joseph is down and, and, and Potiphar's wife, he's in the dungeon, he's slowly rising up in Egypt. In all that time, this is chapter 38. Up here in Cana, we have a parallel story taking place. But why here? That was my first question when I read this the first time this week. Why here? Why is this here? Why don't they just go on with the Joseph narrative? Well, some of the more liberal critics, if you ask them, say this chapter actually proves that, the, that Moses couldn't have written this. Since it seems so out of place, so jarring, so disjointed. Genesis, they say, was cut and pasted later by a people that they call redactors. They took different stories and just put them together, and there we have Genesis. But I think that there is a much better, much clearer reason why God inspired this chapter, this self-contained chapter here. And it's a much simpler reason, actually. One of my mentors years ago, and you've probably had a mentor that said this to you too, he said, you know, Blake, you always want to keep the main thing the main thing. And that's all God is doing here. He's keeping the main thing the main thing. The sermon series here is titled Genesis, the Gospel According to God. Expressing in that title of this series that the gospel is at the center of Genesis. In some way, shape, or form, each narrative is there to prepare us in some way for the coming Christ. And here, as we set out in the long Joseph narrative, the Holy Spirit doesn't want us to miss it. He doesn't want us to miss the next carrier of the Messianic line. Went from Abraham to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob, and from Jacob to Judah, and as we'll see, from Judah to Perez. See, the firstborn had already given up his status. Judah was the fourthborn. The firstborn had already given up his status. I don't know if you caught it, but back in chapter 35, Reuben disqualifies himself. He goes in, and in one, one verse, one, one verse that we almost skip over, it says that Reuben went in to Jacob's wife, Billa, and had intercourse with her. What was, Jacob, what was Reuben doing there? Well, he was doing the same thing that Absalom was doing when he was trying to take over David's kingship. He was trying to usurp his father's authority in the family, and that disqualified him. Simon and Levi, the second and third born of Jacob, have disqualified them too, themselves too. If you remember back in chapter 34, it was their idea and their plan to go and, and wipe out the men of Shechem. So the messianic blessing now falls to Judah, the fourth born. And the Holy Spirit wants us to keep our eyes on the prize, keep our eyes on the promise. He wants us to, to focus in during this long Joseph narrative, letting us know that through Judah, the snake crusher is going to come. But as we just read, Judah's a mess, isn't he? 
Judah's a mess. I mean, the, the first 23 verses of this is all what I've called a testimony of, of sin. A testimony of sin. That's our first point. The chapter opens with Judah moving away, leaving his family. This is significant since families did not move apart. Today, very commonplace for, for families, people to grow up, children to grow up and move away. Not 4,000 years ago. Perhaps there was some bad blood in the family between his brothers after that whole selling Joseph into slavery incident. Or maybe living as a second-class son in Jacob's family just got to be too much for him. And I'm out of here. Or perhaps he still might be nursing bad memories of when they were coming back and, and he was sent on ahead with his mother as a human shield as they were approaching Esau. I'm sure he understood what was going on there. Whatever the reason, Judah wants a clean break from his family. He wants a new start, a new beginning, a clean slate, if you will, and moves northeast of Hebron. But what we find here is the timeless truth that we all know. And maybe some of us have experienced that a person can make, cannot make a clean break from themselves. Whatever we're, whenever we try to run away, our past and our sin goes with us. Your baggage travels. Your sin travels. Why? Because it's in your heart. Because it's part of you. And we see that right here. Judah falls in with some friends and he makes a great friend, Hira, who's, who lives in Adullam. And while living there, Judah has a kind of a shotgun wedding. Did you notice that? To a woman who is Shua's daughter. We don't even have her name. I say shotgun wedding because if you look at verse 2, the language there we see is the language of seeing and taking. Did you pick up on that? If, if you didn't, you should. You should take note of that in Genesis because that language of seeing and taking in Genesis is really a suggestive language of impulsive sinfulness. Impulsive sinfulness. Eve saw and took the fruit, right? Pharaoh saw Sarah and took her. You see, you see Shechem seeing Dinah and taking her. And that continues on throughout Scripture. You see uh, Samson seeing and taking a Philistine wife. You see Achan in, Judge, in, in uh, Joshua seeing and taking the gold in Ai. So Judah is unfaithful and, and impetuous and falls into a, a, a lustful decision. Judah is also unfaithful to the covenant. We see that. He marries outside the faith. This is a Canaanite woman he's marrying. Even this early on in redemptive history, we have the, the, the principle of marrying within the faith. God never tells people to marry, don't marry a Canaanite or a Hittite because of race. It's always because it's out of faith. Don't marry outside your faith. And here Judah is 
being unfaithful to that covenant promise. As a father, here we see evidence that he's a pretty disengaged father. Did you notice in verses 3, 4, and 5, when, when his sons were being born, Judah names Ur his first son, but who names the second and third sons? His wife. That is, that is, that is significant, and that should just pop out at us. That just did not happen back then. Even all the way up into the birth of Jesus, right? And to John the Baptist. And then there's Judah's deceitfulness. When both Ur and Onan are put to death by God because of their wickedness, Judah is all of a sudden faced with a conundrum. And the conundrum is the family line. The family line could stop here. And if I give my third son to Tamar, he's thinking, two people have died already. I'm not going to give my third son. He's concerned with his family line being in jeopardy. So he sends her back to her father, saying that once my third son is grown up, I'll give him to you. But we learn from verse 11 and 26 that he had no intention of giving the son. Outright lying. Fast forward a few years after Judah's wife dies, and he and his buddy Hira are on their way to Timnah to have his sheep sheared, and look at what happens again. He sees and takes again, doesn't he? He sees what he thinks is a temple prostitute along the road, which is really Tamar in disguise, and he commits adultery by sleeping with her. He has no money with him, so he leaves his signet, which was his identification. If he was to to buy something, he would take this signet that was made out of clay and, and press it into soft clay. That was kind of the signature in the promissory note that was on a cord, So he gave the signet and cord and his staff that probably had an identifying feature on top of his family. Kind of like giving your license and social security number. I'll be back. So in the first 23 verses, we are told that Judah was a lustful, unfaithful, disengaged, adulterous deceiver. That's a testimony of a reckless life. Testimony of a life that that does not want to live, as we were talking in Sunday school class, a, a life worthy of the calling of God. It's a testimony to a life of sin. And anyone can see that, right? We read that. Anyone can see that. Except for Judah. He doesn't see it. He's blind to his own sin. This comes out in, chat, in verses 24, 25, and 26. You can look with me there if you want. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And look at his reaction. Bring her out and let her be burned. Burning is a pretty horrific death sentence. A pretty horrific way to kill somebody. So, behind that, you can, you can hear the, the fury and the outrage, can't you? Let her be burned to death. He is outraged at her sin, that he wants her killed in a pretty horrific manner. 
But we see behind the curtain, don't we? We see the heart that this harsh judgment is really what we would call hypocritical, right? Here he is calling for a harsh judgment on sin, and all we have read about him is his sinfulness. And what it reveals is how blind he is to his own sin. You know, Psalm 36 says, Sin whispers to the wicked deep within their hearts. They have no fear of God. In their blind conceit, they cannot see how wicked they really are. Sin blinds us. Pastor and author Paul Tripp is helpful here. He writes this, Sin is deceptive. He writes, I have no difficulty recognizing the sin in other people around me, but I, can't, I can be quite unprepared when others point it out in my own life. Do you, does that ring a bell to you? He goes on and said, Sin deceives ten out of ten people. Spiritual blindness is not like physical blindness, he says. When you're physically blind, you know you are blind. So you compensate for this significant physical deficit. But spiritually blind people are not only blind, they're blind to their own blindness. They think they see well. So the spiritually blind person walks around with the delusion that no one has a more accurate view of himself and others than he does. Does that strike home to anybody here? Boy, it sure did to me this week. We're so blind to our own sin, we live these hypocritical, judgmental lives, don't we? We're so quick to see sin in the world or in people around us. We're so quick at that, aren't we? Yet we're blind to our own sin. I think that's what Jesus was trying to help Simon the Pharisee understand in Luke chapter 7. Do you remember that story when he's invited over to his house? And then a a prostitute comes in behind him with that alabaster jar of perfume and and, and breaks it over his head. And, And then she gets down to his feet and starts weeping. And she starts drying his, his feet with her hair. And it's interesting there because you get a, a glimpse into the divinity of Christ because it says he heard Simon's thoughts. And here's what Simon was thinking. If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and the kind of woman she is. There's the hypocritical judgment. Jesus hears it. And so he tells a parable to Simon. He says there were two men, and a lender gave these two men one 500 pieces of silver and one 50 pieces of silver. And neither man could pay him back, and so the lender forgave both. Who loved the lender more? Simon says the person who is forgiven the 500, the person who is forgiven more. And Jesus then says this, that's right, 
Then he turned to the woman, but said to Simon, Look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to, to dust my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the first time she came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of anointing my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, he says, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows little love. Brothers and sisters, this is a critical lesson for us to understand in order for us to live together. Jesus is teaching here that there is a correlation, there is actually a correlation between harsh and judgmental spirit and the blindness to your own sin. And until you realize your own greed, you will always judge the greedy. Until you realize your own gluttony, you will always harshly judge those who are gluttonous. Until you realize your own laziness, you will always point fingers at people and talk about people who don't work as hard as you. God has given us his word, his spirit, and the community of faith to open our eyes to our own sin, to to show us our own blindness. And until we begin to live those transparent lives before God, with the Holy Spirit, with each other, until we begin to do that, we will be blind judges. Until you realize how far you actually fall short of the glory of God's standard, you and I will remain harsh critics. And we'll remain that way until our blindness is lifted, until the depth of our own sinfulness is brought before our eyes. And that's exactly what happens with Judah, isn't it? His sinfulness is thrust right in front of his eyes. And there we see a a testimony of his transformation. As Tamar is being taken to being put to death for her prostitution, she sends Judah the signet and the cord and the staff that were left by the man that impregnated her. And Judah looks at them, and he has that aha moment, doesn't he? He realizes that that he's the guy. He has a a Nathan and David moment that's going to happen 900 years in the future. I am that man. It's me. Judah's sin is suddenly thrust in front of his eyes. Do you guys know those ambiguous pictures where there's like, you can see either two vases, a vase or two faces, or the young woman and the old woman, where you stare at it and you see the young woman, and then you're told that there's an old woman there, and you stare at it a little bit more, and you go, oh, there she is. It just kind of pops, doesn't it? That's what's happening to Judah right here with his sin. It just pops. 
he goes almost instantly from hypocrite and judge to repentant confessor, doesn't he? He says, she is more righteous than I. I'm the one, not her. I'm the one that should be burned, not her. Those are words not of judgment, but of humility. Those are the words of a person who recognizes their depravity. Those are the words of a person where the penny drops just this much more. Have you ever had that experience as a, as a believer, where, where the penny drops on your depravity, the penny drops on how sinful you are, and you realize perhaps there was an idol that you never knew? Or you're doing something and you, and you didn't really realize how hurtful it was to people? Or you're living in such a way that a brother or sister comes along and says, Blake, did you realize that you're doing this and, and, and the word says this? That's what's happening to Judah here. The words of a man whose spiritual blindness has just been lifted. And those are the first words of any spiritual transformation. I am not righteous. This is the beginning of any gospel transformation in a person. Your sin that has been hidden so long and guarded so well from people that it begins to be hidden so well from yourself. You don't see it. It's suddenly revealed. It's brought out into the light. It's like if you've you've ever gone from a dark room out into the bright sunshine. It's actually not a pleasant experience at first, is it? It hurts your eyes and it's painful and you put your hand up. But spiritually, that experience is good. That experience needs to happen in your life. First, if you're going to come to Christ with any kind of true faith. And second, if you're going to grow as a Christian, that has to happen in your life over and over and over again. It's difficult and painful to confess your sin, isn't it? It's easy to say, you know, Blake, I'm, I'm a sinner. That's kind of easy to say. It's like saying, I believe in God. That's easy. But it's hard to say, you know, your pastor is terribly harsh and judgmental and mean. That's hard. It's hard to say, I'm a liar. It's hard to say, forgive my anger towards and say their name. It's hard to say, forgive my lust. It's hard to say, forgive my greedy nature. It's hard to say, forgive me, Lord. I confess that I tear others apart in my heart. We just had a time of confession together a few minutes ago. 
And maybe there were things that you needed to confess but didn't. My question to you is why? I'll tell you why. Because it's difficult and it's painful. And it hurts to come out into the light sometimes. Confession and repentance, however, is the soil in which gospel transformation happens. It happens in weakness, not in strength. If we're willing to appear more sinful than others around us, in other words, saying, you are more righteous than I in this way. And we see Judah's growth and transformation when he appears again back on the scene in chapter 43. I don't want you to turn there. We'll get there. And there we read about him again. And we we encounter uh, Judah for the first time after this beginning of his transformation. And we see a totally different person there. We see a person that's back with his family. Whatever baggage or grievances that he had, he's back with his family in a big way. There we see a man who is caring for his father, Jacob, who didn't care for him for decades and decades and decades. We see a man, and we're struck by this man, who no longer is harsh and judgmental, but humble and sacrificial. If you know the story, you know that Joseph has sent the brothers back during this famine and he says, I will not let you into my presence again until you bring your youngest brother down with you, Benjamin. So he goes back, they go back and they tell Jacob, they say, listen, we're starving here, but we, there's food down there. But he says, we're not even going to have a chance to get it unless we bring Benjamin this time. And Jacob, that's his favorite now. Went from Joseph to, Jay, to Benjamin. And he says, how could I let this person... He won't return. I'll lose him too. You know what J- Judah says? Listen to this. He says to his father, if I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame forever. That's a man who is willing to take the punishment that is not his. Wow. That sounds a lot like living like Christ. And that gives us hope. And that's where we're left in the final verses of the chapter, verses 27 through 30, is a testimony of profound hope. Tamar goes into labor and there are twins in her womb, we find out. And one starts to come out and the midwife ties a thread around because the firstborn is really important in this. Firstborn gets the blessings. But he doesn't come out first. The second one usurps the position, if you will, and comes out first. That's why he is called breach or breakout or breakthrough. And this is the breakthrough in redemptive history right now, for this is the messianic line, isn't it? It's Perez. That's what this whole chapter is building up to. We think it's about Judah, but no, it's actually about Christ. This is the line. 
Keep your eye on the main thing. As we read in Ruth this morning, you can draw a direct line from Perez to King David, and you can draw a direct line from King David to King Jesus, can't you? Commentator Ian Duguid writes, We often approach the Bible as if it were a series of heartwarming stories designed to inspire us to good, clean, moral living. In fact, it's a place where we find far more profound hope. Far more profound hope than doing good. The main reason for this chapter is to point us to the profound hope that is found in only one person, and that is Jesus Christ. The Old Testament saints needed reminding of that again and again through Scripture. And we need reminding of that again and again, don't we? That's what this table is all about today. We're to remember that. Because we tend to forget, don't we? We tend to forget that there's a terrible payment for sin. A terrible payment. Judah was actually right. That's the kind of death sin deserves. He's right. He might have had a judgmental heart towards it, but he's actually right. And this table helps us remember that we deserve that kind of a death. But Jesus stepped in and substituted himself for us. He said, I'll bear the blame for Blake. Absorbing my punishment, dying on the cross for my sins. We need this table because we tend to forget that we're forgiven, don't we? We tend to forget we're forgiven. We are, as Martin Luther put it, simul justice et peccator, at the same time justified saint and sinner. We need to remember that we need payment for our sin. And that Christ did that. He forgave our sin. So let's take some time before we enter this table together to both praise and thank Christ for what he has done on our behalf, for justifying us before God, for absorbing our sin. And let's also take some time perhaps again, to repent of and confess of maybe some sins that the Holy Spirit has bubbled up in our time together. Let's take a few minutes before we go to the prayer.